This is Brian McClintock, and you're listening to the Viticole Wine Podcast. Viticole is a monthly wine club of organically farmed selections curated by yours truly. Essentially, I collaborate with my favorite winemakers from around the world, delivering custom bottlings directly to Viticole Wine Club members. With the podcast, I interview the winemakers, importers, and proprietors of each featured monthly offer, so wine club members can listen and drink along. Today's podcast is part one of a two-part series featuring winemaker Sashi Mormon of Eveningland Vineyards. In part two, we'll get to know the Gamay grape and learn all about July's custom bottling we created for Viticol. But in part one, we'll explore how Sashi came to be within the wine industry, his partnership with Mega Sommelier, Rajat Par, and how France has shaped their thinking and the landscape of production from Santa Barbara on up to Oregon with the Eveningland label. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Viticole Wine Podcast. My name is Brian McClintock. I'm here with Sashi Mormon, um, co-proprietor and winemaker of Eveningland Vineyards, along with some fantastic other wine projects, including Sandy, Domaine de la Cote, Piedra Saucy, Pence. The first question I have, and it's on the top of mind of pretty much every listener, is what is life like in Lompoc, California? Is it all it's cracked up to be? <laughs> it's, all, it's, 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 the, it's the hidden gem of the California coast. Uh, that's what I figured. I noticed that they added a second easy space storage. Oh, yeah. And yeah, I thought yeah. to myself, we're here. We're finally here. Oh, real estate's just booming. It's, it's, there's tech jobs. <laughs> Silicon Valley, maybe relocating. I saw Zuckerberg wandering the streets of Ocean Boulevard. Let's talk about what you like about Lompoc. (laughs) Uh, Honestly, what I like. So I grew up in Juneau, Alaska. Oh wow! And uh, and so that was from age five till Mm fifteen. And pretty much every day there, the weather sucks. One hundred and twenty-five inches of rain, and so. It sounds really weird, but you know it's kind of like comfort food. Um, there's maybe something like comfort climate, and so Lompoc is a really has really crappy weather. Um, <laughs> so just, you're used to that. Feels like that home. feels like home. Yeah, nice. I think, I think that's why. I like, I mean, because my wife doesn't really like it. Nobody else likes it. Everyone else hates it here. So, um, but that 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 very cold and foggy climate is what makes it so good for growing grapes. And the surrounding areas is, of course, incredibly beautiful. In town, pretty amazing hole-in-the-wall Mexican. So there are things to love. you got beaches out west. Yeah, life is good. The the natural resources are fantastic. Yes. Okay, so let's talk about your family. How are they doing? Uh, Family's great. Uh, Melissa's recovering from a ski accident, so that's putting the baking on for a while. But she'll be back. um, Her plan right now is uh, beginning of September. She'll be back at the farmer's market in Santa Barbara. So was she in South America? Because the ski season's been (laughs) done for No, it happened in February. We were in Tyra. Oh, wow. And she, yeah, it was not recommended to to mess up your knees. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yeah, everyone's good. It's been been a nice summer. Um, I feel like maybe for the... I feel like it's been quite some time since we've been able to kind of enjoy eating outdoors because part of the Lompoc weather is that almost every evening, you know, it drops down to 55 degrees. And in a lot of coastal areas of California, 
that happens a little bit later, maybe mm-hmm. like around eight, nine o'clock. But in Lompoc, because we face directly to the ocean, mm-hmm. that fog comes in a little bit earlier than other coastal communities. And so it starts to cool off around four o'clock. But this summer has been unique. I think this summer it's been a little bit warmer, which I think means really good things for the vintage. Do you think that's a trend that's changing here? Do you think you've noticed different weather since you've been here quite a while? Yeah, I've been here. We've we've lived in Lompoc for over ten years now, so it's been this will be the twelfth year, and I, I think it has. I think this is more whatever normal is, but this is what I remember when we uh, first lived here. Definitely from 2000, I would say with the 11 vintage up until, you know, the last vintage 16, it's been, it's been very strange weather. It's been very, very cool during the summer um, with, you know, some heat spikes and then obviously we had a drought and those were all really hard on mm-hmm. the vineyards. This was a great, great year. We had a lot of rainfall, which helped cleanse the soils and we just had a really nice growing season. You know, I've been away. I was up in the north, and I, I, I heard that you guys, like, got all your rain, like, practically on one day. Is uh, that true? No, no, no. Not, not exactly. But we did have some, some pretty major rain events. Um, we had a nice one kind of, you know, we always are hopeful to get a good rainfall sometime in the beginning of March. But mm-hmm. break for us is usually the second week in March. And so to get a really nice rainfall in the beginning of March really sets us up for having a good bud break good push, you know, a lot of strength um, in the vines, and then that, you know, will also help with good set flowering, all that mm-hmm. stuff. So, how, actually, how long have you been in California? When, when did you, I, I don't even know your background. Okay. I really, so, um, brief history of Sashi Mormon's After life. Uh, leaving Juneau, Alaska, my family moved to Washington, D.C., and so I went to high school uh, right outside of D.C. in Bethesda. And I went to college uh, in the Hudson Valley, Vassar, where I met Melissa. And after graduating from college, uh, all of us, all of us, the, half the graduating class, uh, you know, moved to New York City. And so I went with that half and got a job cooking in restaurants. And so I worked, worked on the line at a couple restaurants in Manhattan, uh, Oceana in Midtown, and then a small restaurant in El Parisi called Otazumi. And that's really where I got. I was interested in wine before, but working, I worked with a guy who was, who was the owner and the chef who was just really crazy about wine. And it's kind of interesting to me. He, he was, I think, um, I look back on it now. I look back on the wines that he was interested in. We were drinking, you know, Austrian Riesling before that was really popular. Wow. We were drinking wines from the Jura. We what year is this? Coke. This was um, 1994. Wow. So his name is Jonathan Rapp. He, he owns a, three restaurants now in Connecticut. So he was very progressive. Um, I think he, he had a really great mind for wine and, um, and also for food and was able to, was really seeking authenticity and looking for value when most people were still not focused on that. So uh, from some of these kind of lesser well-known regions in Europe. So that was great for me. I, I quickly developed a uh, you know strong uh, like for Syrah <clears throat> and so when uh, Melissa and I decided to leave Manhattan mm-hmm. she went to writing school in Alabama I moved to California and that was in 1996 mm-hmm. and I worked with I moved to go work with Adam Tolmack at the Ojai Vineyard and I went there specifically because 
I had tasted his Syrah in New York and was like, mm-hmm. wow, this is doesn't taste like Syrah from the Northern Rome, but it's really, really good. So um, I got really lucky. It was not, it's not easy to break into the wine business. Um, there aren't a lot of jobs in cellars. I, he had just had his first kid and Helen, his wife, who participates, um, had participated a lot in the winery in the past, wasn't as available. And so they needed somebody. And so I was able just to convince him to give me a job. And so it was, uh, yeah, I was, I was hooked after that. How did you know you actually wanted to get in production? Like, I mean, there's not a lot of people who like lift barrels and go, yes, <laughs> this is it. But obviously there are, you know? Uh, yeah, it was, it, it's, you know, cooking and making wine are not, uh, dissimilar. Mm-hmm. You know, you're, I think a lot of the things I learned cooking are, you know, you can apply in the winery things like you, know, you spend most of your time cleaning. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's most important is the raw ingredient you know the, the how good your raw materials are really define how good the final product is and so Adam was very focused on that he was at that time there weren't a lot of winemakers here in San Barbara County who were thinking about lower yields and you know finding vineyards with lower vigor and using less irrigation and less fertilizer and Adam was Adam was finally in tune with that and so it really I really got to see it sounds flippant but how easy it is to make good wine when you have really good grapes mm-hmm. he was he was uh, he was ahead in that way okay so how did how did it transfer from kind of being in the Simhai Kohai mentorship system mm. to, to branching out on your own from there? Uh, Adam was buying grapes from Stolman Vineyards, some Syrah, mm-hmm. and Tom Stolman was transitioning from being a grower to being an estate winery and was looking for someone. And since I had a chance to make the 96 through 2000 uh, Stolman Syrahs at Ojai, um, it, was, it was kind of a natural fit for both of us. Uh, Tom wanted someone who had some experience with the vineyard, who was working with grapes that he believed had a great future. And I was really looking for an opportunity to learn more about vineyards because Adam is a pure negociant. So he doesn't have any vineyards. He doesn't do any direct farming. And so I wanted to take that next step and not only learn, you know, Adam gave me a great foundation in kind of the basic fundamentals of winemaking. And then I had the opportunity to work with Jeff Newton and Ruben Solanzano at Stolman and really learn the fundamentals of farming. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we had our, there were definitely conflicts there on the farming side when I arrived, but I think what I took out of Stolman that was the most rewarding was the, the kind of the learning curve that Ruben and I shared. Uh, you know, I took Ruben to to the Rhone Valley in 2005 and that just was such a wonderful trip. We we started actually in Burgundy, we ended up in Piedmont, and we went to the Rhone in the middle and just got to see a lot of vineyards. We went in uh, July so we could see all the growth, we could see the vigor, the balance, how people were farming and it just, it became really clear like, so in the winery we know what's important is having great grapes. 
and then figuring out how to get great grapes, it was the same thing. If you have a really great vineyard site, you just have really good grapes. You don't have to work that hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you might have to work hard to get that great vineyard site because usually great vineyard sites are not planted, are not found in the easiest places to grow plants. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was super clear, like in Cote Roti and Hermitage, like, wow, like these are not easy vineyards to plant. They're not easy vineyards to cultivate. But look what happens when, you know, you get grapes from these sites. They're just magical. And when you talk to the growers, they're being typically French, saying, you know, what makes this wine so good? And they just say, you know, the vineyard. Did and what my grandfather did. <laughs> yeah. And you, you look at them and you're like, yeah, of course, that makes perfect sense. So, you know, Ruben and I came back from that with, I think, a, a, an absolutely new focus, which was, you know, how to find the best sites um, with vineyards that we were working with, um, how to look for the right terroir. And what that meant was, you know, weak soils. And that, that was, that's still something I think that in California is not really discussed. People in California on the viticultural side still have a preference for strong soils. They want to see really healthy, uh, big plants um, that can carry, you know, good crops and have a nice, big, healthy canopy. And my experience traveling through Europe is that all the best wines come from either very old vines that have very low vigor mm-hmm. or both an older vine and a weak soil that translates to very low vigor. Mm-hmm. And there you have a very natural low yield. And so you have just naturally concentrated wine grapes that are ripe at lower potential alcohol. And so you bring those to the winery and if you just do your thing in the winery and you're careful, you're going to make compelling wine. Mm -hmm. So when in all of this does Raj enter the mix? So I met Raj, I sold Raj uh, wine when he was working at Michael Mina. Uh, So he opened Michael Mina, I think in 2003, maybe Mm -hmm. 2002, maybe 2003. And um, I started Pietro Sassi in 2003. Um, I was, you know, working with um, a broker in San Francisco Sarah Floyd, um, who was friends with Raj, and so she made the introduction. And kind of immediately, I, you know, I, I felt like Raj and I had very similar um, affinities for certain kinds of wine. And that, that was also kind of, uh, in that fold was a guy named Jim Knight, who uh, own the White House. So I feel like between Jim and Raj, I was, those two people introduced a lot of wines to me that I don't think I would have been able to have on my own, mostly because they were old um, and I just didn't have access to, you know, being able to drink old Burgundy and old Northern mm-hmm. Rhone wines. By the way, Jim Knight, one of the greatest greatest guys in the wine industry ever. Yeah, I mean, at that time, we were drinking a lot of old Dujac, um, old Dimonti. Um, it sounds extravagant, but Raj had access to a lot of old DRC. It was expensive then, but it wasn't like now. Um, Jim was bringing old Jaez. Um, we were drinking, you know, Cuvée Catalan. I mean, th- today, these wines are so expensive, so rare, but at that time, they were kind of new and... 
they were expensive, but we were they were still within reach, and we were certainly spending all of our money on wine. It was not uh, financially prudent, but um, but we were all drinking these wines, and we all liked them for the same values, and I think that's what really brought Raj and I together. Then, with Raj, we started. Uh, you know, Raj had a little negociant brand called Par Selections that came into the fold in. 2006, 2007, under Evening Land. Um, and then he started Sandy in 2010 with Charles Banks, and I was brought on as the winemaker. Were you doing the par selection wines with I, him? Yeah, not all of them, but the ones down here. He was making some Syrah from Beckman Vineyards. We were making a little bit of Chardonnay from Sanford Benedict. But I think, you know, that was a really wonderful arc too because Raj was was learning a lot about how wines were made and he wasn't learning about it the way most California winemakers learn about wine. Most California winemakers learn about making wine by kind of just trial and error in their own winery. So it's very slow. Um, Raj, because he travels so much and has so many friendships in the wine world, was able to bring back so much information from all of his visits and we would kind of you know try and assimilate them here and I think that that really helped my winemaking and I know our whole winemaking team really accelerate because we were able to, to you know hear about these techniques um, from great winemakers who would were willing to share with Raj precisely how they made wine, which also was kind of rare. Um, and it was just an amazing opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it's not like now where there's, you know, this is not that long ago. Even if it's 10, 11, 12 years ago, the world has changed so much. The communication factor is like so much higher. You know, a lot of these winemakers are on Instagram, they're on Facebook. Back then, it's just, it was still like, you maybe see the same four or five guys going to Burgundy. You know, right. it wasn't this explosion of you know, age of enlightenment, traveling to different cultures like, like it is now with wine. Yeah, I mean, a guy like Aaron Jordan obviously had um, a big advantage, you know, kind of working with Kermit um, uh, and Bruce Nyers doing those trips. Uh, he was, you know, working in the Rhone. He had spent time with Mil Versailles. And I mean, when you, when you talk to Aaron, you, you realize that he does have a, a different uh, perspective and I think that in my, in my experience with a lot of winemakers in the new world, they, they just don't have the same opportunity to go and see um, and taste. I mean, Raj has been, you know, not only is he generous with, with his wine, but he's also very generous on, you know, allowing you to join him on his trips through, through Burgundy and the Northern Rhone. And just, I learned so much just going on those trips with him and tasting in these cellars and asking questions. And those vignerons are very comfortable with him. They have a great respect for him. And so they, they easily share information about how they make wine or what they look for in the vineyard, what the harvesting parameters are. Um, that, you know, they might be a little bit more cagey with other, other visitors, but they were very open with him. And so I think I was... A, it was a huge benefit just sitting there being a fly on the wall just kind of trying to absorb all that. Well, 
clearly you guys are kindred spirits. And in the very beginning, when you started making, um, you know, a Chardonnay here and there, a few of the par selection wines, did you have any idea that this would blossom into a full-blown partnership? I mean, I think, yes. I mean, in the sense that, you know, Raj is able to bring to the table his tremendous repertoire of wine. So, for instance, when we taste a Domaine Loco Pinot Noir in barrel, and he says, this reminds me of this vineyard from this producer from this vintage. I, you know, I, I'm not, no one's going to argue with him. I mean, he's one of the few people that has that amazing, you know, uh, not only taste memory, but set of experiences of tasting so much Pinot Noir over so many vintages from so many great domains. Um, and then being able to kind of extrapolate, like, so, you know, does that mean that we can take more structure to the wine? Can we take more fruit? Can we take more alcohol or do we need less alcohol, more acidity, less acidity? And those are all just about, you know, harvest parameters. Um, and that has been, yeah, I mean, there's no way the winemaking team here could could have made as much progress as we did with Domaine Lacote without that, that influence and that, you know, resource. And then I think for Raj, what we've done is we've allowed him to explore many more boundaries than he would have been able to on his own. I mean, he's pushed the boundary on California Chardonnay. He's pushed the boundary on Syrah. <laughs> you know, he was one of the first guys really asking people, how come you don't ferment with more stems and whole bunches? That's like what they do, you know, over in the Northern Rhone. And, you know, one of Raj's favorite stories is, you know, a winemaker here said, well, you just can't do that. And Raj's like, why? He's like, well, you just can't because it's just green and gross. So Raj's like, well, I'm just going to try it. So he tried it with Beckman Syrah. We, we made it here. And, um, you know, that was really eye-opening for me. Adam Tolmack doesn't use any stems. Um, now he does, but when I worked for him, everything was destemmed. He was very much against stems. And so having a guy like Raj in the cellar saying, hey, let's try stems. And so, of course, we tried that. Not only did he, we try, but he would say, so I just called, you know, whoever, Etienne. He said, you know, do it like this. And so we would try that. Sometimes it would work, sometimes it wouldn't. But we had so much um, opportunity to get information from Raj, from, you know, his relationships with Vigneron that I think we were able to quickly develop a house, house way of making wine that really expressed the fruit here the, in, in the best possible way, where we got this great transparency to our terroir and our climate um, through these very old world techniques, which I think Raj and I, that, that's our, we have a strong affinity for that. We, we're not as enamored with kind of modern wines, more enamored with traditional classical wines. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've noticed that about both of you, and that this may be part of why you guys connect so well, is not only you like the same wines, but you guys both are not afraid to ask the question, why? Yeah. Or why not? You know, and you know, whether it's part anarchy or part progressive, progressive behavior, I think, you know, there's, there should be more of that in the world, period. Yeah, I, I, I think that Raj really, ex he excels at um, wanting to explore lots of different avenues. And I think he wants to be on the vanguard of 
what is going to be relevant for California moving forward. Right. Right. That was in pursuit of balance was something that became kind of a marketing vehicle, but that I don't think that was a spirit in which Raj was envisioning that. He he, he saw it more as, you know, he wanted to participate in in kind of guiding California winemaking on the whole moving forward that you can absolutely make elegant, balanced, beautiful wines that are age-worthy and complex in California. Believe it or not, before In Pursuit of Balance, a lot of people just didn't believe that was true. They just didn't believe that California could make a wine like that. That what California could do was, you know, richness, fruit, opulence, that's what they should stick to. They shouldn't try to, you know, emulate the kind of the traditional and classical winemaking of northern France. But, you know, Raj was like, why? Why not? Like, we've got great soils, we've got great climate, why can't we do this? And, and I certainly think, there was a history with other grapes in California back in the 70s where... For sure. That was happening. And, and I think that that also, you know, because Raj tastes a lot of wine, he was tasting a lot of these old California Cabernets, um, even some old California Pinot Noirs from either William Selliam or from uh, Aubon Clément. Uh, and so a lot of, you know, young California winemakers, either they don't have access to those wines or they're not interested in them. And so the only, their only reference point is kind of what's, you know, contemporary, you know, what's, what they're looking at in terms of their peers. And circa 1996, 98, you know, with the rise of Parker, if you were a young winemaker then looking around, all you saw was, you know, super rich, opulent wines. And so that's why a lot of winemakers just made that kind of wine. There weren't, um, there weren't organizations like In Pursuit of Balance or wineries that were really championing what would have been still, yeah, very traditional California wines. Old Mondavi wines are very elegant and balanced, you know. So I think because Raj was able to taste all those wines, being in the restaurant setting, he never forgot that California could do that, and he wanted to make that part of the conversation again. So when does Oregon come into the mix? So Oregon came into the mix because our financial partner at Domaine Lacote um, is the majority owner of Eveningland. And Eveningland had a, you know, it, it just burst onto the scene um, with a lot of very strong statements and positions about pricing and um, very, very ambitious, you know, winery in Burgundy, a winery in California, a winery in Oregon, um, trying to bring those all to market in some kind of cohesive fashion, just um, uh, a very difficult task. And um, I think that it proved ultimately to be too challenging. And so when Raj and I had an opportunity to participate at Eveningland, uh, the initial discussions that we had is that we really believed that in order to give Eveningland its full credit, um, it needed to focus on what was its most beautiful vineyard at the time, which was Seven Springs. Domaine Code had already been removed, so the Santa Rita part of Eveningland had been removed a year prior. So by the time Raj and I uh, came to Eveningland, they were focusing on Sonoma, um, Lima Valley, and Burgundy. And we just, <laughs> our opinion was that there were, there are plenty of people making great wines in Sonoma. Um, 
you know, it, it, some of them are our friends. We just didn't feel like we needed to be in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, Burgundy, obviously, uh, we just didn't feel like we had much of a contribution to make. Um, and in Oregon, we really felt like, wow, you know, the, what we have at Domain Code is a very young vineyard, a vineyard that I planted in 2007. And that has its set of challenges and joys. Seven Springs was planted in 1984. Some of, them, some of the vineyards are more recent than that. But it was a whole new experience. You know, older vines um, in what is a very gifted place. I mean, that eastern exposure on the Eolamity Hills, I think, is, is one of the best terroirs in the Willamette Valley. And it was just, you know, an opportunity that we couldn't pass up. So our partner was agreeable to um, focusing on Seven Springs. He thought that was a good idea. And so, so we went forward on that. It was, um, it was definitely a challenge in the beginning. Um, I was familiar with the program because I had been with Eveningland since 2005. I had never made wine up there, but I would visit on a regular basis. So I was familiar with the facility. I was familiar with the vineyards. Um, Dominique Lafon was the consulting winemaker since 2007 up there. And I had a chance to spend time with him. Uh, so it, it, it wasn't... It, for me, it wasn't new. Um, and Raj had spent a little bit of time up there as well. He made a cuvee with Eveningland called the Red Queen uh, 2008, which was a whole cluster Pinot Noir um, because uh, that, that winemaking team also wasn't uh, too fond of stems. So, so he had spent some time in the winery as well and was familiar. So it, you know, we did have some experience. But I think what has been the most interesting for us is taking that vineyard and what they had always done in the past was kind of to make cuvées. So they would work very hard on putting together a blend that would be Sumum, La Source, and the Estate. And Raj and I really came into that program with a very different mindset where we said, you know, we really want the wines to be, you know, site-specific. And so we really started to, you know, lay down the initial boundaries of La Source. Since then, we've moved those boundaries a little bit, but we knew kind of what we wanted for that. Um, same thing with Sumum, same thing with the estate. And we have a new cuvee, Andin, which is from the old vines, the original old vines. And so I think for us, we, we came to it with a different lens, um, a little bit more uh, specific, trying to really call out the you know, special qualities in the different terroirs that are at Seven Springs. And so that's been super rewarding for us because we've been able to We've been able to do that, um, and I think we've been able to do it successfully. So, is all of Evening Land Estate fruit from Seven Springs? Um, all of yes. So, the estate wines are all uh, from the from the eighty five acres that we have there. In the past, there was some great contracts, and so there are wines out there. Um, that are uh, Eel Amity Hills Appalachian. But moving forward, with the 2017 vintage, this vintage, we will be only a state, uh, which is really exciting for us. Um, it's something that Raj and I have been aiming for, for uh, since we got there. We do sell some grapes to some friends, um, 
And I think that's fun because it's always, it's always interesting to see what other people are doing with your grapes. Um, and of course, they're going to ferment them and produce them in a different way. And so we can kind of have a conversation about that and, and learn you know, things that they're doing that are, we think are very successful and maybe bring those into our program, vice versa. So obviously you spend a lot of time in California. Oregon presents whole new challenges as a whole. Totally. So let's just zoom out and talk about that for a second. So I think, interestingly, what is, what, what has been, maybe on the, on the winemaking front, what has been interesting is that that terroir is very, very different from the terroir we have here. Here we have marine sedimentary soils that are uh, weak and we have relatively low rainfall. In Oregon, we have volcanic soils that are quite strong with a lot of rainfall. The climates are actually more similar than you would think. Um, the, the biggest difference is that Oregon has a much shorter growing season. So bud break is much later because the winter is cold and dark. And the harvest is sometimes truncated because once the storms start, you have to pick your grapes. There's, there's kind of like almost a literal cutoff once the rains start. So you have a fairly compact growing season and it's quite warm in the summertime. Here, we have a much longer growing season with a much cooler summer. But at the end, when you look at the chemistry between the must in uh, Seven Springs and the must in Domingo Coat, not that different. Alcohol, pH, TA, all about the same. Um, which, it, that's been a big surprise for me, actually. I, I thought it'd be a lot different, but they're pretty similar. I think that... Texturally, concentration-wise. That's where it's really different. So, and that has to do with the morphology of the, of the grapes. So if you look at the grape clusters here at Domino Lacote, they are small, very small, with very small berries. If you look at the grape clusters in Oregon, most vintages, um, there are exceptions, but most vintages, the clusters are larger with bigger berries. And I think that translates that, that one quality, that visual quality or physical quality, translates directly to the wines. Do you think a lot of that is a wind thing with Domaine de Lacote? Yes, there's a, we have a, it's very difficult here for during flowering. The air temperature is quite cool, so pollinization is not very successful, which is why we have so many shockberries or milrondage. In Oregon, typically during flowering, the weather is actually quite nice. Mm -hmm. um, and so you typically, um, if it doesn't rain uh, during flowering, you get a really good set. And so that's why you get the elongation of the rachis. There's a lot of nitrogen in the soil. So the vines, if you get a good set, the vines want to get, you know, grow you know, more flowers, set more fruit because the vine feels like it has the resources to ripen more fruit. Versus here, um, typically we have a very poor set, so the grape clusters are quite small. We don't have a lot of nitrogen in the soil, so we don't get that elongation of the rachis, and so the, the bunches stay really small. And so that, that is a reason why in right now at Seven Springs, we have, even though we experimented with a lot of whole cluster, we've really move the program to mostly destemming, um, just because the tannin load is naturally much higher in the grapes. Yeah. And actually 90% of the tannins come from the seeds. Mm -hmm. And so the, 
the the tannins, you know, we don't have a lot of seeds in our grapes, and our skins are very thin, so we need those stems to kind of build that framework to the wine. In Oregon, we have a lot of seeds in the grapes, we have thicker skins, and so we just don't need more tannin. In fact, we have to be quite careful not to do too much extraction, otherwise the wines will become quite backwards, they'll be more astringent when they're um, in barrel, and then that limits your options. You, you're, you either have to rack the wines more, um, or you have to find them, which we don't like doing. So we're now very, very gentle with the extraction in Oregon. No punch downs, only pump overs, very short macerations, um, just to make those wines to limit their tannin so that they're more elegant, so that they're softer and, and you know just more beautiful. So if we look at Willamette Valley as a whole, we're talking pretty much 75% of the population of Oregon here. It's a rather large place, six sub-AVAs. Yeah. Why Eola Amity? What so, about that area? So, you know, I, I'm not the best person to ask about this because, you know, there are people up there who, like, like Josh Bergstrom, who works in, I think, every single Appalachian um, and grows grapes in those Appalachians and is super knowledgeable. What I can speak to about the Eola Amity Hills from our experience is that Typically, we see a later harvest, so that can be as much as two weeks. So Dundee being south-facing and being a little bit further away from the Van Duzer Gap where that, the cool air comes in um, in the evening, it just ripening is a little bit quicker there. And so to me, what is interesting in Oregon is that, so in Burgundy, one of the things that was always perplexing to me when I first went to visit there was we would be tasting with someone in May or June and you know because of the labor issues in Burgundy they have to organize their harvest teams months in advance because these these the people who help pick the grapes go and pick other agricultural crops you know they move into Alsace and they pick apples and pears and they pick grapes and you know they're they're constantly moving their their migrant workers and they'll you know like Jeremy Sess would say like oh yeah harvest this year will be September 10th you know we've organized our teams and like how in the world do you know that I mean because my experience in California was that you don't pick the grapes until they're ripe right right so if you can't taste them yet how would you know when your harvest gonna be and he just said well it's 100 days it's 100 days from mid-bloom more or less. Sometimes it's a little bit later if the, you have bad weather. And I said, oh, God, that just seems so unromantic. And, right, and right. not like, you know, I always was, I was kind of taught when I first made wine, was making wine in California that, you know, you really have to taste the grapes. And when all the flavor is there, that's when you, that's when you pick them. Um, in Oregon, what's interesting is between Oregon and Domino Lacote and uh, Santa Rita Hills, is that in Santa Rita Hills, we're usually a little over 100 days, meaning that at 100 days, we're only at maybe 11 degrees of potential alcohol. Like, we literally don't have enough alcohol. There's not enough sugar in the grapes to get enough alcohol in the wine to produce a, you know, delicious bottle of wine. So we actually have to wait a little bit longer to get a little bit more potential alcohol before we can pick. Mm -hmm. In Oregon, it's the opposite. Usually, particularly the couple last vintages, which have been very, very warm. Finally, 2017 is kind of shaping up to be a more classic Oregon vintage. But 14, 15, and 16 were very warm vintages in Oregon. 
And potential alcohol of 13 degrees was reached before 100 days. Anywhere between 85 and 90 days at Seven Springs. And we're typically two weeks behind the rest of Oregon. So I think that what's interesting about the Eola Ambi Hills is that I think it's much more successful in a warm vintage because you're buying yourself a little bit more time. If, if you want to produce wines with lower alcohol and you want to pick them um, at that potential alcohol of 13 to 13 and a half degrees, you know, and you're trying to get 100 days um, on the vine, Eolamity Hills is a good place to be because in the Dundee Hills, probably at 100 days, you're, you're over 14 degrees. And you can kind of see that with the 14, 15, and 16 Oregon Pinot Noirs, there are more opulent wines or richer, richer wines. Now, in a very cool vintage, Eolamity Hills is probably a much bigger challenge. Um, and it may be that, you know, we have to go over a hundred days and we, and, and we will not be at even 12 or 12 and a half degrees of potential alcohol. So that, that is a challenge that Raj and I have not yet had to face. So potentially this year, because it looks much later, um, it looks this year that, you know, harvest really won't begin until the end of September, beginning of October. And that's when the weather starts to get a little bit dicey. So if you're in the Dundee Hills, I think you're shaping up for a great vintage this year because you're probably going to be harvesting, you know, mid-September um, where weather is very favorable and you're not going to get caught with any rains. But maybe in the old Amity Hills, it could, might be a little bit more challenging because we might have to wait a little bit longer. Interesting. So it's funny, even before I really was getting into wine, I would hear about the Seven Springs Vineyard. It's obviously a heritage site, but it, you discussed how special it is. You've got older vines. You have a you know, very special eastern exposure. Can you kind of delve into why that place is so magnificent? So, you know, having seen a fair share of great vineyards um, in the world, there it, there's a very strong correlation <laughs> between a nice view and a good vineyard. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think of the ugliest vineyard I've ever seen that makes great, great wine, and there are just not very many. Um, typically, when you go to see a vineyard for the first time that you've heard about, right, whether it's Cote Blanc or the Hill of Hermitage or Latache or you know, Clos de Bez. You, you go to visit the vineyard, you stand in the middle of the vineyard and you're like, okay, this makes sense. Like you're kind of up on a hill, um, you can feel the breeze, you can look at the ground and the soil is a little bit rockier because you're kind of up on the hill, you're not down in the flat part. Um, and it all kind of comes together and you're like, well, yeah, this is like a really nice place. Um, and to me, there's such strong connections between what what, what people like and what vines like, you know, it's, it's, it's very similar. And so it just, when you go to Seven Springs and you stand in the middle of Seven Springs, it's Al McDonald planted that vineyard with his wife. Um, and I can only imagine that when they were driving up that Lone Star Road with the real estate agent. What year was that? Uh, he probably purchased it in 82 because it was planted in kind of 83, 84. Um, you know, he just drove up that road and they got out of the car. <laughs> He's like, 
there's Mount Hood, you know, in the distance across the valley. Um, from certain parts of the estate, you can see the Dundee Hills to the north. Um, it's just, it's just this beautiful eastern exposure. You're up on the hill, but you're not at the top of the hill. Right. So you can feel the breeze, but the the wind isn't super strong. It's kind of tempered a little bit, and I, you know, I don't think they knew that much about growing grapes or making wine, but they knew that it was a really beautiful spot, and I just, that's to me, that's the beginning of why it's a great place to grow grapes. I think what we've discovered since Al planted those vineyards is that there are areas of the estate that have rockier and therefore less vigorous soils. And those places are where we make our best wines now. And so I think the site and the climate Al immediately responded to, and then it takes years to kind of learn about your, your soil, um, which we've had, we've had that advantage since it's been there for so long that we can kind of see like where, where those great spots are. Yeah, it's interesting. So like, I think for people kind of trying to navigate the soil situation mm -hmm. in, um, in Willamette Valley, you have kind of your Jory soils, you have your Nakaya, you have your Winsel. Yeah. Basically stratifications of the same thing. How, how, yeah. do you, how do you articulate those differences? So there's, yeah, most of the vineyards in the Willamette Valley are planted on those Jory soils. Um, there's a, there's a, a deeper soil that is kind of related to the Missoula floods that are called the Woodburn series, and those are usually lower elevation. And so that's typically why you don't see that many um, high-quality vineyards planted at lower elevation. Most of the, of the vineyards that are celebrated are kind of, you know, above 300 feet. It's, that was the kind of the, the, the breaking point with those floods. They didn't really reach above 300 feet in elevation, and so the soils above 300 feet are the more ancient basalt soils, those Jory volcanic soils. There are some other soils up there that are very, very interesting. You know, uh, the, the one that comes to mind always is, is Maggie Harrison's vineyard at Antiquaterra. Mm -hmm. um, sedimentary soils that have, you know, fossilized uh, oysters in them. So very, very unique soils for Oregon, very, uh, very special soils. So, you know, but, but predominantly, it's, it's, there are these volcanic soils. And, you know, when you travel... Um, when you travel around Europe looking at soils, you know, there is, you know, you hear a lot about limestone. Um, and it, it took me a long time to understand kind of why limestone is a, is a celebrated, you know, geological feature of great vineyards. It, it, you know, it changes the pH of the soil. And so all plants like slightly acidic soils with the exception of there's a few plants that don't, that actually like alkaline soils, but it's not common. So when you have alkaline soils, you have less vigor. And so when you have less vigor, you have naturally lower yielding grapevines. And when you have naturally lower yielding grapevines, you have more concentration in the fruit and nicer balance in terms of the chemistry. In Oregon, I think that that's the biggest challenge is that oftentimes the soils are, are quite rich. And so you are, you are on a viticultural side, you're dealing with vigor. So here in the Santa Rita Hills, what we deal with is productivity. 
it's just very hard to get good yields because we have an arid climate, doesn't rain very much. We have, many of our soils are alkaline and if they're not alkaline, they're very low in nitrogen. Uh, you have a windy, windy, very cool marine influenced climate that affects set. So all these things add up to very um, difficult situation to get good yields. In Oregon, there's not typically a problem with yields. Usually yields are quite good. The challenge is how do you manage the vigor? I think that one thing that will become extremely valuable in Oregon are old vineyards because we've lost a lot of the old vineyards in Oregon because when they were originally planted, they were ungrafted. So there's phylloxera in Oregon, and so a lot of those older vineyards have either succumbed to phylloxera or winery owners have ripped those vineyards out. Um, so we're kind of on, you know, we're on the second generation of vineyards in the Willamette Valley. When those vineyards become, and if they're well taken care of, when those vineyards become 50, 60, 70 years old, a vine is like a person, the metabolism slows down, they're just naturally less vigorous. They produce smaller yields. And when that, when Oregon has, you know, a bounty of older vineyards that were planted well and farmed well and managed well, you know, and they're 60, 70 years old and they're naturally producing a ton and a half, two tons an acre with a modest canopy that doesn't need to be hedged very often or you don't need to pull laterals and do a lot of leafing, that's when Oregon, I think, will start to produce, you know, even better wines than it does now. But we have a long ways to go.